This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 22, Management of Traumatic Brain Injury. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma we've got it covered and now here's your host never afraid to bring the jibber jabber it's shaylin jasani hello and welcome to the veterinary ecc small talk podcast with me shaylin jasani thanks for joining me once again today on today's episode i'm going to be talking about the management of traumatic brain injury or closed head trauma. But before that, I would like to thank Sarah from the UK for her iTunes five-star rating and review comment. Sarah left a comment about the episode that I did covering listeners' fluid therapy questions. And she writes, Very helpful. I have pondered these exact dilemmas. Shaylin helps you think through it logically, which helps with any fluid therapy dilemmas that might crop up. So thanks very much for that, Sarah. It's much appreciated. I also wanted to thank Dr. Jamie Burkett-Creedon from the US for her five-star rating and review comment. I'm sure that some of you will be familiar with that name. Jamie is a fellow ECC diplomat and, amongst other things, has published on critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency. In fact, I actually mentioned one of her papers in the podcast episode that I did on steroids in shock. One of the things that Jamie mentioned in her review comment was that I try in these podcasts to encourage critical thinking rather than to just give you cookbook recipes for how to treat patients. And honestly, it was really great to hear that as that is very much what I aim to achieve. I always say that it's important for everyone to try and think about why they do the things that they do in their clinical practice rather than just following what they've been told. So thanks very much for your comments, Jamie. I really do appreciate that feedback. Okay, so let's get into the episode and talk about traumatic brain injury. As I always say, these podcasts are not meant to take the place of CPD presentations. And my intention is not really to try and cover every aspect of the topic. Although I suspect that this episode is going to be uh, quite a long one. In today's episode on TBI, I'm going to try and focus on the key points that I think you should know, but I'm also going to mention some of the main potentially contentious types of areas. Much of the content of this episode actually reflects the many questions or suggestions that I've received from you, the listeners. A number of people have requested an episode on TBI, so thanks for that, and do let me know whether I have addressed your queries and what you think of my comments. I should also say that I've created a one-page summary of the approach to traumatic brain injury, which you can download from a link in the show notes, and I'll give you that link at the end of the episode. So the first thing to say is that, as always, the priority in the management of any emergency patient is to triage and address potentially life-threatening problems implement stabilization measures, and provide analgesia as needed. 
there is no difference here in terms of whether the patient has traumatic brain injury or not. And of course, these potentially life-threatening problems may exist elsewhere in the body. So for example, a cat that has been hit by a car may have traumatic brain injury, but their, their most pressing problem could actually be a severe pneumothorax. Now clearly these problems do not exist in isolation as the body is a whole entity. And so when you address that pneumothorax, you will also be affecting the traumatic brain injury in a helpful way by improving oxygenation, reducing the patient's distress and so on. But if we focus on the traumatic brain injury, then the underlying injuries that result from head trauma can be separated into two categories. So primary injury and secondary injury. Primary injury includes, for example, concussion, contusion, so basically parenchymal hemorrhage and edema. You also have laceration and extraaxial hemorrhage. And the latter may not be as rare as previously has been thought. Now the primary injury occurs as an immediate result of the traumatic event, and so there is nothing that you can do about this. It will already have happened by the time you see the patient. The prime aim then in the management of traumatic brain injury is to try and limit the secondary brain injury that may occur as a result of various mechanisms, including hypoxia, ischemia from hypoperfusion, raised intracranial pressure, active hemorrhage, and compromise to the blood-brain barrier. And as I'll mention, this is why key priorities in the management of TBI patients are to improve cerebral perfusion and oxygenation, and potentially to try and reduce intracranial pressure. It's all about trying to minimize the development and extent of secondary brain injury. So the priority is basically to ensure that the brain receives an adequate supply of well-oxygenated, but not excessively oxygenated, arterial blood in a patient that's also got adequate ventilation. And treatment for possible raised intracranial pressure is just one part of this therapy. Secondary brain injury is also affected by hypo or hypercapnia, hypothermia, hypo or hypoglycemia, and so on. When it comes to ensuring that the brain receives an adequate oxygen supply, this is clearly dependent on two things. So firstly, that there is adequate blood flow to the brain, and secondly, that the blood flowing to the brain actually contains enough oxygen. I'm actually going to deal with the second part of that first, so making sure that the blood flowing to the brain contains enough oxygen. Now basically the approach here to monitoring in terms of arterial blood gas analysis versus pulse oximetry and principles of supplementation are the same as for any other situation, and I'm not going to rehash all of that here. If adequate oxygenation cannot be achieved non-invasively, the patient should in theory be anaesthetized, assuming that they're not in a state to tolerate intubation. They should be intubated and ventilated. However, there are clearly practical and financial considerations to providing this kind of management that may actually prevent you from implementing it. One point I did want to make for your interest was that it is said that while inadequate oxygen delivery to the, the brain is clearly likely to be harmful, there is also increasing evidence that, as has been suggested or shown for other organs such as the lungs, too much oxygen may also be harmful by promoting oxidative injury, which is in fact one of the main mechanisms of secondary injury in TBI. 
But you should note that I don't think this potential concern about hyperoxia is going to apply to the vast majority of head trauma patients that most of you listening to this will be dealing with. The veterinary patients in which it may be a concern are really going to be ones that are intubated and could be on 100% supplemental oxygen. In those cases, you need to be cognizant about not overdoing the oxygen supplementation and about reducing the FiO2 to a more moderate level as soon as you feel able to. But as I say, I think those are tiny minority of veterinary patients in general and most likely only to be managed in more advanced ICU referral settings. The majority of cases will be receiving non-invasive oxygen supplementation and this should not be harmful in terms of causing worrisome oxidative injury. So the take-home message is that if you have any doubt about the patient's oxygenation status, then take a liberal approach to supplementation. One of the questions that someone sent through was, how long should we supplement oxygen for? And my take on that is that largely it is the same consideration as for any other patient in which you are supplementing oxygen, and that you should be guided by the same principles in terms of titrating and discontinuing the oxygen. I would be taking a more liberal approach perhaps in terms of starting and continuing supplementation where there is any doubt. But on the flip side, carrying on just in case is also not rational. I don't think I could give you a more prescriptive response because it is subjective to some degree and also depends on the circumstances of the individual patient that you happen to be treating. Okay, so that's oxygenation. What about ventilation? So the patient's carbon dioxide status is something else that ideally we need to bear in mind and which is predominantly, although not entirely, dependent on their ventilation. In the past, hyperventilation was recommended as a treatment for raised intracranial pressure because it lowers arterial CO2 levels, which causes cerebral vasoconstriction. It can therefore potentially reduce intracranial pressure. However, it is now believed that this cerebral vasoconstriction could be harmful and potentially considerably more so than the raised ICP it was attempting to address. And the reason it could be harmful is that it basically reduces cerebral perfusion. Hyperventilation may worsen morbidity and mortality, and inducing hypocarbia is therefore no longer recommended. But at the same time, hypercarbia is also to be avoided, and the recommended target is a PaCO2 or N-tidal CO2 within the normal range, so approximately 35 to 45 millimetres of mercury. Of course, being able to monitor this will require either access to arterial blood gas analysis or a capnograph or capnometer. Moreover, unless the patient is intubated, your ability to actually influence ventilation is relatively limited. But nevertheless, any processes that may interfere with adequate ventilation, so for example, a pneumothorax or severe pain, must be addressed appropriately. Okay, and then as I said before, the other essential aspect to ensuring that the brain receives an adequate supply of well-oxygenated blood is to ensure that there is sufficient blood actually flowing to the brain. In other words, that there is adequate cerebral perfusion. After all, it's all very well for there to be enough oxygen in the arterial blood, but if it's not getting to the brain tissue then the brain remains susceptible to suffering that secondary injury that we are trying to limit.
And also carbon dioxide obviously needs to be removed from the brain in the venous circulation. So what does cerebral perfusion depend on? Well, as I'm sure many of you uh, will remember, the equation that we need to bear in mind here is that cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to mean systemic arterial blood pressure minus intracranial pressure. So CPP equals MAP minus ICP. Now, when the brain is healthy, there are homeostatic mechanisms in place that serve to protect cerebral blood flow over a range of MAP values, and this is so-called autoregulation. In other words, if the brain is healthy, such that the homeostatic mechanisms are working, then whether the MAP is 70 or 150, cerebral blood flow should be protected. But when the brain gets injured, then this autoregulation may be lost, and cerebral blood flow becomes even more dependent on that cerebral perfusion pressure. So this means that one of our key goals in the management of a traumatic brain injury patient is to try and maintain adequate cerebral perfusion pressure, which we do by optimizing the mean systemic arterial pressure and potentially by trying to manipulate the intracranial pressure. Now the head trauma patient may well present with systemic hypotension, i.e. a decreased MAP, and especially if there has been multi-system trauma with significant blood loss. Traumatic brain injury may also result in a systemic inflammatory state with subsequent systemic vasodilation that may cause or contribute to hypotension. As you know, mean arterial pressure can be measured non-invasively using um, either an oscillometric device or Doppler's phygmomanometry. <laughs> That's always a really tricky word to say, isn't it? Um, so a reasonable target map is 80 millimetres of mercury. And if you've only got a Doppler and systolic blood pressure, then a target of 100 millimetres of mercury is considered equivalent. Of course, as I always like to point out when talking about so-called targets, it is essential to bear in mind the evidence behind these targets to try and understand where they have come from or been extrapolated from and whether they are actually applicable to the patient you are dealing with. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you should not have some targets in your mind to be used as guidelines. Just don't obsessively focus on numbers without paying attention to what other findings related to the patient are telling you. And this brings me on to my next point. Some of you listening to this may not have access to blood pressure measurement, and even if you do, one of the other points that I have made on more than one occasion in these podcasts is that, to my mind, it is actually more important to assess the patient's perfusion status based on physical examination and to ensure that hypoperfusion identified on the basis of physical examination is corrected, regardless of what your blood pressure device may or may not be telling you. So blood pressure monitoring is not a substitute for regular assessment of physical perfusion parameters. Now, in terms of how you're going to go about optimizing systemic perfusion and blood pressure, well, the principles here are essentially the same as in any other patient that needs intravenous fluid resuscitation, something which I have talked about in other podcast episodes. A replacement crystalloid solution is a typical first choice. But hypertonic saline has a role to play in the hypoperfused brain injury patient, and I think I'll say a bit more about that later on. 
And then, of course, you may have the option of adding in vasopressor-type agents. The only other thing to comment on is that back in the day, some people, when presented with a brain injury patient that was in shock, would withhold fluid resuscitation on the basis that they did not want to potentially cause cerebral edema and exacerbate raised intracranial pressure. But modern teaching is very much about making sure that you treat the shock and restore systemic perfusion and blood pressure as your first priority, so don't withhold fluid resuscitation in these patients. Having said that, it does, I hope, also go without saying that you should try and be careful not to overdo it. So excessive fluid therapy just for the sake of it is not likely to be a good idea and may worsen intracranial hypertension, especially in the presence of a damaged blood-brain barrier. And then the other part of that cerebral perfusion pressure gradient was intracranial pressure. So remember CPP equals MAP minus ICP. Now if you remember the Monroe-Kelly doctrine states that intracranial volume is made up of the brain parenchyma, the cerebral blood volume and the CSF. As this is all contained within the skull, which is a rigid structure, if one compartment increases in size, one or both of the other compartments has to shrink to compensate or you will get an increase in ICP. This compensation between compartments is known as intracranial compliance, but it's important to realize that it does have its limitations. And in the traumatic brain injury patient, where there is parenchymal damage and potentially leakage of blood, then getting raised ICP is a real possibility. If the ICP increases beyond the limits of what can be coped with, then cerebral perfusion pressure is compromised and ischemia occurs, eventually global brain ischemia and subsequent brain death may ensue. So one of the questions that follows then is, well, how can we tell that our patient has intracranial hypertension, so raised ICP? And actually, I don't think that is as simple a question as it sounds. So in human medicine, they do have the ability, at least in some hospitals, to actually measure ICP in various ways, both invasive and non-invasive. But I'm not going to expand on any of that here. Now, don't get me wrong, not every person with head trauma has their ICP measured, but some certainly do. Direct measurement of ICP is not practical as yet, in general, in veterinary patients. I'm not personally aware of any centres where this is done in clinical patients but there may be some, and if you know of any, then please do let me know. Measurement of optic nerve sheath diameter using ultrasonography has also been explored in human medicine. The retrobulbar optic nerve sheath is continuous with the subarachnoid space, so its diameter may reflect intracranial pressure. And there are also some investigations into whether there is any um, clinically useful correlation between intraocular pressure and intracranial pressure in people. As far as I know, neither of these eye-related ways of assessing ICP has yet been reported in veterinary patients, but again, if I've missed it, please do let me know. It is interesting to note that while they can measure ICP in people, one of the ongoing points under discussion is whether managing brain injury patients using ICP measurement results in better patient-centered outcomes than using clinical judgment alone. And actually, I imagine the consensus is that they should be seen as complementary 
rather than independent means of patient assessment. One thing that we can make use of in veterinary patients is the cerebral ischemic response, also known as the Cushing reflex. If you remember, when you get a sufficient increase in intracranial pressure, this triggers systemic arterial hypertension as a response to try and maintain cerebral perfusion. And subsequent to that, you get a reflex bradycardia. So basically you're saying the triad in the, in the cerebral ischemic response is raised ICP, raised MAP, and a reflex bradycardia. I should say that I've had cases in the past where we have been worried about raised ICP. The patient develops systemic hypertension and we intervene despite the lack of bradycardia because we suspected that they were in the midst of the Cushing reflex. So the Cushing reflex is perhaps the most specific way we have for detecting raised ICP, but the problem is that it is a pretty late onset phenomenon. So the theory is that by the time you detect the Cushing reflex, the increase in ICP is likely to be substantial, and so ideally we would want to pick that up earlier on. But if you do find Cushing reflex signs in a patient, then this should prompt aggressive treatment as the reflex signals possible life-threatening intracranial hypertension. One little kind of semantical thing I did want to throw in is that in this podcast I've mentioned cerebral ischemic response, but I've also said Cushing reflex a lot. And some people don't actually like the word reflex being used here because the overall response is not a reflex. So we're probably better off calling it cerebral ischemic response, or if you don't like that, then Cushing response. So I should probably be self-correcting what I'm saying and saying the Cushing response, not the Cushing reflex. Anyway, so this leads on to the question of what other findings might suggest raised ICP. And the sorts of things you would be looking for include an unexplained deterioration in mental status, dilated non-responsive pupils, loss of physiological nystagmus and decerebrate posturing. But I should also say that in one sense you could almost argue that any animal that has suffered significant head trauma is likely to have some increase in their intracranial pressure. Now that's not to say that they all need specific therapy for it, of course, but just that we might assume its presence in the absence of any good means of actually detecting it. So what about the treatment for raised ICP? Well, this includes measures to promote venous drainage from the brain, such as keeping the head elevated at 15 to 30 degrees is the standard recommendation above the horizontal, and minimizing jugular compression. However, the most effective therapy is going to involve medical therapy for cerebral edema, so basically trying to shrink the brain by exposing it to the dehydrating effects of either hypertonic saline or mannitol. Now, I decided for this podcast not to elaborate on how these two agents may work, because I think this is already going to be a pretty long episode. But it is noteworthy that the suspicion is that they probably both have multiple mechanisms of action in terms of their role in treating raised ICP and traumatic brain injury, but the osmotic effects are most likely to predominate. Now, in terms of which of these two, uh, two solutions to use, then that's certainly something that comes up quite a lot. Well, the first question, of course, is what do you have available to you in your clinic? 
I meet people who only have access to one or the other, and that will obviously affect what you do. But if you do have both, then you should note that at the present time, the evidence base that exists does not support one of these fluids being more effective than the other for the reduction of intracranial hypertension. Now, you should note that the evidence base is either experimental animal models or clinical human patients. In a normovolemic patient, so a patient in whom you're not worried about their perfusion status, then either of these two can be chosen. But mannitol is contraindicated in hypoperfused hypovolemic patients because it is an osmotic diuretic and will likely exacerbate the situation. And remember I said that restoring systemic perfusion is one of the key goals in TBI management. Hypertonic saline, on the other hand, is a rational choice in hypoperfused head trauma patients, as it may serve to both restore intravascular volume, albeit this will be transiently because it's basically just causing a fluid shift from the extravascular space. So it does restore intravascular volume, and at the same time, it may also reduce intracranial pressure. And in fact, shocked head trauma patients are one of the classical uses of hypertonic saline in small animal practice. So just to reiterate, if you have any concerns about the patient's systemic perfusion status, then avoid mannitol and use hypertonic saline. If you're not concerned about systemic perfusion, then you can use either. Mannitol can be more of a hassle because depending on what formulation you have and whether or not you keep it warmed, it can crystallize out, which needs dissolving before use um, to your clinical patients. And obviously that can cause some time delay. So if you don't currently stock either mannitol or hypertonic saline, but you want to get one of these solutions, then hopefully it's clear from what I've said that based on current information, hypertonic saline probably makes more sense as it can be used in all patients and may be more convenient to use. And I don't think there is a significant financial cost differential between these two solutions, but I'm sure someone will let me know if I've got that wrong. And the last thing to say is that if you try one of these medical therapies and you do not feel like there's enough positive response, then you can go ahead and try the other one. So it does not have to be a one or other situation. Now, a couple of other things I wanted to mention. One was about using furosemide. So someone had emailed me asking whether that is something that could be done. In theory, you could use furosemide for raised intracranial pressure. After all, it is a diuretic, and in that regard will have a similar effect to mannitol, albeit through a different mechanism. And as far as I know, it's not really the case that one is considered more effective than the other. And I also believe that there is some work done that suggests that using mannitol and furosemide together may have a synergistic effect when combined in the setting of raised ICP. As for mannitol, furosemide should be avoided if the patient is hypovolemic. But it's my understanding that the reason that furosemide is not usually used instead of or indeed in addition to mannitol is that it is more likely to cause potentially severe electrolyte abnormalities. Remember, furosemide is a loop diuretic, whereas mannitol works as an osmotic diuretic. I have personally not used furosemide in these patients, but I would be interested to hear from anyone who actually has or actually does. 
And then in terms of when medical therapy in general should be implemented, it's not always entirely clear when this point is reached. However, the Cushing response will definitely be considered an indication. Medical therapy is also considered rational in a patient with progressive neurological signs, secondary to TBI. And there may also be an argument for the use of medical therapy in any patient that has moderate to severe head injury that is refractory to aggressive extracranial stabilization. Okay, so that's enough about that. Let's move on. Um, Rightly or wrongly, I decided not to get bogged down in the detail of the neurological examination of the head trauma patient in this podcast episode. I'm sure that you could find that information in many other resources. However, one point that I did want to stress is that when you are assessing the neurological status, be careful not to draw premature conclusions. So what I mean by this is that various factors such as hypoperfusion, hypoxemia, hypothermia, hypoglycemia, and so on, these findings, uh, these factors can actually affect the findings of your neurological assessment. And it is important to ensure that these influencing factors are addressed first before drawing conclusions about the patient's neurological status. Once the patient has been stabilized, you can do a detailed neurological exam and then repeat this on a regular basis for monitoring and prognostication. I wanted to also say a few words about diagnostic imaging in the head trauma patient. Obviously, like with any other trauma patient, you may want to perform your point-of-care ultrasound evaluations of the abdomen and thorax, and I've mentioned those briefly in other podcast episodes. And then down the line, there may be additional indications for imaging the head trauma patient, for example, if you think they have fractures of the long bones. But when it comes to plain radiography of the head, then this is definitely not routinely indicated. Although plain skull radiographs may reveal fractures, it can be really difficult to obtain radiographs of interpretable quality, and plain radiographs do not provide clinically useful information with respect to brain injury. Now, when it comes to more advanced imaging, then aside from the issue of availability, we get into a little bit of a can of worms, I think. So some of you will be aware of the history of head CT in human trauma patients, and I'm not going to elaborate on that. Suffice to say that there is some concern about its overuse and there's constant discussion about what criteria should trigger a head CT to be performed. And those points apply equally to veterinary patients. And likewise, when we consider the use of MRI in brain injury. I'm not going to get into the relative strengths and weaknesses of these two imaging modalities, but out of interest, it is probable that MRI may provide prognostic information by detecting subtle parenchymal damage that's not evident on CT. And in fact, there was a paper published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine along these lines of the use of MRI for prognostication. That paper was published in 2014. And there was also a paper published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association actually this year in 2015. And the references to both of those papers I will include in the show notes. And as always, I'll predicate that by reminding you to keep your evidence-based critique principles in mind. 
The other factor that we would need to bear in mind when considering advanced imaging is obviously patient restraint. So clearly, if the patient's mentation is such that they are not going to move anyway, then fair enough. And to be fair, some of you may occasionally anesthetize a severe head trauma patient for a relatively extended period of time because you feel that this is the best way to manage them in terms of protecting their airway, ensuring adequate oxygenation, and so on. Although I'm pretty sure that that is something that happens a lot more frequently in people because of the differences in facilities, experiences, expertise, resources, and so on than it does in veterinary patients. But with all of that said, there will also be some head trauma patients that will need to be sedated or anesthetized specifically for advanced imaging to be performed. And then you really do need to weigh up the relative risks and benefits when deciding if imaging is a good idea or not in that individual patient. Okay, so kind of moving towards the end part of the podcast, I'm going to mention a few other treatment considerations and then touch on prognostication. So in terms of other treatment considerations, the first thing is that we want to try and minimize any increases in cerebral metabolic rates. So what steps can you take or what steps might you have to take to minimize increases in cerebral metabolic rate? Because these increases in cerebral metabolic rate may worsen the brain injury further. And remember that all of this is about trying to limit that secondary brain injury that I mentioned right at the start. So anti-seizure therapy should be used immediately if indicated. But also note that to my knowledge, there's no evidence supporting the prophylactic use of anticonvulsives in brain injury. So treat the seizures if they occur, but don't give these drugs just in case. Any patient that is distressed, so they might be flailing or constantly vocalizing, should be sedated. And this sedation can be achieved using opioids, but also with anticonvulsive medications, even if the patient is not seizuring. So anticonvulsive agents, as you know, can have some degree of sedative properties, and therefore they could be a rational sedation option in a head injury patient. But there may be a need for other sedative agents, such as acepromazine or indeed metatomidine or dexmedetomidine. And I'm not going to expand upon that, uh, the use of those agents further here, but do feel free to get in touch with any questions or comments. You should also treat hypothermia, and hypothermia may occur, for example, secondary to direct trauma, actually to the hypothalamic thermoregulatory center. But hypothermia may also occur, for example, from seizure activity. And those could be seizures that have motor activity that you can see, but they could also be silent or subclinical seizures that you're not actually able to detect. Now, hypothermia is undesirable as it increases cellular metabolism and vasodilation, leading to increased ICP. I'm not going to go into this in much detail here, but I'm sure that some of you will be aware of the potential use of therapeutic hypothermia in human medicine, which is used in various scenarios of which traumatic brain injury is one, and the basis here is that inducing hypothermia may be neuroprotective. Now, one of you did previously ask me whether you should be doing this, so I wanted to just say a few words about it. If we look at the situation in human medicine, then as far as I can tell, the jury is still out, and there isn't a consensus position about the risk-benefit assessment of using therapeutic hypothermia in brain injury. You also have to remember that in human medicine, they are often striving to try and create guidelines at a more granular level 
So for example, to differentiate between different age groups, between different causes of brain injury, and between different severities of injury, including different elevations in ICP. So hypothermia, inducing hypothermia may be neuroprotective, but it obviously does also pose some risks to the patient, as well as practical logistical challenges to the staff. So can you actually do it? And can you provide the patient with the relevant monitoring and care that they're going to need? And so on. So I think you'd want to be pretty sure that the benefits outweigh the risks and the implications before you would undertake this. Now, as far as clinical veterinary uh, evidence is concerned, there is one published case report that I'm aware of, and I'll include the reference for that in the show notes. As always, if anyone knows of anything else that has been published on clinical veterinary patients, then do let me know, please. Now, I guess my take on what we should do at the moment is if the head trauma patient presents hypothermic, then I would not actively warm them, but I would take steps to prevent them from getting even colder. If they are normothermic, then I would maintain this. And if they are hyperthermic, then I would cool them to normothermia, but I would not actually be inducing hypothermia. Having said all that, if I had a patient with severe brain injury where the prognosis was considered very poor to grave, and I was working in an advanced referral setting, and the pet's carers understood the implications and lack of evidence, I would be willing, I think, to give induced hypothermia a go, on the basis that in this individual patient, in these clinical circumstances, then the potential benefit could be justified. But I stress that this is a very unfounded personal position. The next thing I wanted to mention is analgesia. I'm mentioning it here almost like it is an afterthought, but in fact it should obviously be one of your first considerations right at the beginning during the initial assessment and stabilisation stage. Now some of you may have come across colleagues in the past and maybe even still know some now who say that analgesia should not be given or should be minimised because you don't want to potentially affect your ability to make neurological assessments of the patient. Well to that I say nonsense. I'm being a bit facetious and there is some room for discussion here. But we must always remember that alleviating pain is a key aim in all clinical patients from a welfare point of view. And in fact, similar to what we say in other contexts as well, it may be that by removing pain from the equation, you end up being able to do a more reliable rather than a less reliable neurological exam. So for example, if the patient is agitated or distressed and pain is part of the reason for this, then removing that pain component may actually be uh, helpful allowing you to perform a more reliable neurological exam. And we also have to be aware that ongoing pain may also tend towards hyperthermia as well. And then, of course, some head trauma patients have variably depressed mentation and your pain assessment may be somewhat limited, in which case you should be assuming its presence and treating just in case, in my opinion, albeit conservatively. So take a liberal approach to providing analgesia. Once a rapid baseline neurological exam has been, has been performed, analgesia should be administered. Now, pure opioid is the agent of choice, so a mu agonist opioid. As these agents are rapidly acting, methadone is probably preferable to morphine, as morphine may induce emesis, which could worsen the raised ICP. And if available, fentanyl can be an excellent choice in these patients. 
Remember, as always, that NSAIDs are contraindicated in hypovolemic patients, and many trauma patients are likely to be hypovolemic. Analgesia may also contribute to sedation, which can be helpful, um, as I mentioned previously. And look, I'm not going to say anything about ketamine here, other than by all means use it in these patients. If you have not already done so, then do listen to the podcast episode that I did dedicated entirely to ketamine, in which I discussed the controversy around its use in the uh, patient that has possible raised ICP. And I will link to this episode in the show notes. I think it was episode 14, so vetecsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 14. And that's one four as in the numbers, not 14 in the letters. And the next thing to mention is whether or not you should be using corticosteroids in traumatic brain injury. Now, the use of methylprednisolone succinate for central nervous system injury was a long-standing practice in both human and veterinary medicine. However, and this might come as a surprise to some people, it was not a practice that was actually based on any sound clinical evidence. More recent clinical trials in humans have not shown positive effects on outcome, and some have actually suggested possible increases in morbidity and or mortality. So considering the potential adverse effects, which could be, for example, gastrointestinal ulceration, increased risk of infection or immunosuppression, hypoglycemia, increased catabolism, given the potential adverse effects of these agents, then current recommendations are that methylprednisolone, or indeed any other steroids, should not be used specifically for traumatic brain injury. Now, there are a couple of things I wanted to say about that. The first, of course, is that this current recommendation not to use steroids in veterinary patients with head trauma is extrapolated from clinical evidence in humans. It may be that that evidence is going to change in the future. And of course, we cannot be absolutely sure that it applies to dogs and cats. But it seems to me that if there is no good evidence showing that steroids are beneficial for CNS injury in dogs and cats, and if the current consensus is not to use them in people, who after all are another mammalian species, then we should not be using them in dogs and cats either at the moment. I'm always saying about being careful about extrapolating between species, but on the other hand, we have to see how that lays, or sorry, lies, in the context of the risk-benefit assessment and the potential harms that we could be doing. So for sure, it's an area that could be discussed and debated, But my current perspective, based on the situation at the moment, is that I don't think we should be using steroids in CNS injury. The second thing to say is that we are talking here about traumatic brain injury. And so the potential role of steroids in patients with other types of brain problems is a separate discussion that I'm not going to get into. I did want to say that I do occasionally use corticosteroids in head trauma patients. But this is at an anti-inflammatory dose. So for example, dexamethasone at 0.1 mg per kg. And I would do that if I was worried about there being significant soft tissue swelling due to the head trauma that was causing the potential compromise to the patient's ability to breathe adequately. But this is a very different indication and a very different dosing regimen to the previous use of steroids for CNS injury. So I hope that that is clear. 
The next talking point is about hyperglycemia following traumatic brain injury. Now, hyperglycemia is actually seen relatively commonly following TBI, and it is thought to be due to a response that includes the sympathetic nervous system and the adrenal medulla, so basically a catecholamine-driven response. Now, it is generally said to be associated with increased mortality or at least worsened neurological outcomes in humans and in experimental animals, although I do believe that there is some more recent evidence that's potentially discordant. Nevertheless, some of the questions are, does hyperglycemia actually worsen the brain injury? Is it just a marker of the severity of the injury, or both? And if the hyperglycemia is detrimental, then maintaining normal blood glucose levels within tight limits is actually still controversial in human patients with severe TBI, because hypoglycemia, which is apparently a common complication of tight glucose control, can induce and aggravate underlying brain injury. As far as I'm aware, the majority of currently available clinical evidence in people does not support the tight glucose control during the acute care of patients with severe TBI. Now, surprise, surprise, the evidence in clinical veterinary patients is, as usual, really poor. But hyperglycemia following traumatic brain injury in dogs and cats may at the very least be a marker of the severity of that injury. And that is, uh, whatever evidence is available, that is what it suggests, and it's also my personal anecdotal experience. Over the years, it has seemed to me that the patients with worse head trauma were also the ones with more severe hypoglycemia. But at this time, there is no evidence to suggest that the hypoglycemia necessarily has a detrimental effect on outcome in clinical dogs and cats. And even if there was such evidence, then the same risks associated with tight glucose control that apply to people would also apply to veterinary patients too. So the upshot is that specific therapy to try and lower blood glucose is not indicated, but it is important to try and avoid iatrogenic hyperglycemia if possible. So for example, don't give these patients corticosteroids. The other point to make is that even if there is a correlation between the severity of traumatic brain injury and the level of hyperglycemia, which remember I said is my own personal anecdotal experience, then that does not mean that we can use the blood glucose prognostically. It may be that there is some prognostic value in watching how the glucose trends, but this has not been shown as yet, and we certainly should not be using a single blood glucose measurement prognostically. Now, bearing in mind what I've just said about hyperglycemia, someone had in fact asked me about the potential administration of glucose to traumatic brain injury patients. I'm not sure, but I think this may have been on the back of some experimental work, suggesting that there may be a benefit of providing exogenous energy substrates for the brain during periods of increased cerebral metabolic demand. But it's my understanding that the current consensus is that in clinical patients, we would only administer glucose if they were hypoglycemic, which can actually worsen the secondary injury, and we would aim to maintain normal blood glucose concentration rather than to inducing hyperglycemia. Okay, and then to end this somewhat lengthy podcast, I want to talk a little bit about prognostication 
which is something that is challenging in both human and veterinary patients. Although clearly there are many differences between these two patient groups in terms of the options available, the evidence, the facilities, and so on. Now clearly our desired endpoint is for a live patient with a good quality of life. It is important for us to not make too hasty judgments as dogs and cats can compensate for considerable loss of cerebral tissue. And on the flip side, we also don't want to drag things out when there is no point. In human medicine, clinically derived prognostic calculators such as the IMPACT prognostic calculator, IMPACT stands for International Mission for Prognosis and Analysis of Clinical Trials in TBI, Um, So there's that calculator, and then there's also the crash prognosis model. And these can help to at least guide prognostication, even if they're not completely definitive. But ultimately, the level of consciousness is the most reliable empirical measure of impaired cerebral function, and it provides information about the functional capabilities of the cerebral cortex and the ascending reticular activating system in the brainstem. In human and veterinary patients, signs of slow but steady improvement are likely to be the most practical guide. Now many of you I'm sure will have heard of the modified Glasgow Coma Scale or the Small Animal Coma Scale. And this is a quantitative way of grading and monitoring brain injury by scoring three categories from one to six. So the categories are motor activity, brainstem reflexes and level of consciousness. And I will include the reference to a paper from 2001 in which this was reported. I'll include that reference in the show notes. I might be wrong, but I think that the modified GCS was actually first reported uh, back in 1988, but don't quote me on that. Now, in this paper, this 2001 paper, it suggested that a modified Glasgow Coma score of 3 to 8 suggested a grave prognosis. A score of 9 to 14 suggested a guarded prognosis, and a score of 15 to 18 suggested a good prognosis. However, there are some things that we need to bear in mind about this paper. The first is that it applied to dogs only. The second is that dogs that had polysystemic injuries were excluded from the study, and we know that a significant proportion of head trauma patients actually have polysystemic injuries that could also affect their prognosis. As far as prognosticating on the basis of a specific MGCS score, I don't think it can be argued that this 2001 study is adequate for that purpose when we critique it from an evidence-based point of view. But as long as we keep that in mind, I think we definitely can use the MGCS as a tool to monitor our patients and objectively assess their progression rather than wanting to use it as a prognostic indicator. So perform an assessment early on and then repeat it at regular intervals to monitor progress. Undoubtedly, though, the lower the score, the poorer prognosis, but be careful about overcommitting on the basis of this single study. And in fact, very recently in 2014, the MGCS has been modified further and made available for free as an app for iOS and Android. The The app allows users to use the MGCS to assess their patient's neurological status and to prognosticate, but bear in mind the caveats that I've already referred to. The app also allows the data that is entered to be submitted to a server database. Two weeks later, the user is asked to submit further information for the same patient 
in terms of progression and outcome. In this way, it is hoped that real clinical data can be collected, contribute to an evidence base, and allow refinement of the MGCS, especially with regard to prognostication. I must admit that I'm not sure how well this app is doing in terms of how many people have started to use it, but I will include a link with some information in the show notes. And the last thing to mention about prognostication is MRI, which I mentioned earlier. So there was this retrospective study published in 2014, which suggested that MRI could be helpful in predicting the prognosis in dogs with TBI, and that second uh, JAVMA paper that I mentioned that was published this year. And I will include the link to these papers in the show notes. The 2014 JVIM paper is actually open access, so you can read that. Um, I don't in this episode have the time to critique those papers, but do bear your evidence-based principles in mind when reading through them. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this long episode. By necessity, there were some things that I did not get into, including nutritional support, nursing care, decompressive surgical therapy, monitoring, and so on. But I hope that you found it interesting, and I did try to answer all of the questions that I'd received on this topic in the last few months. As always, you can download a transcript of this episode at the website. So the link is vetecsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 22. So that's vetecsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 22. And that's the numbers 22. And you will also find summary show notes there. Also, as mentioned earlier, if you would like a one page summary of the approach to traumatic brain injury, then go to the website at the link I've just given you and you'll see a little box to click on there. Or you can download it directly from a link that I've created, which is bit.ly forward slash vetecc TBI management. That's bit.ly forward slash vetecc TBI management. Please do get in touch using the contact form on the website via email at shailenjasani at gmail.com, via Twitter at vetemcc, or via Facebook at the Veterinary ECC Small Talk page. And I would love to hear what you think of this episode, what you agree with, and indeed what you might disagree with. And my usual request when ending these episodes to help support the podcast by rating and reviewing it in iTunes, by sharing about the podcast on your social media channels with your friends and colleagues. And thanks a lot to those of you that have already done this. It is really very much appreciated. The next episode uh, in this series of podcasts will be, I guess I would say probably within the next two to four weeks. I'm aware that I've sort of dropped down in terms of the frequency with which I've been producing material, just gotten quite a lot busier in recent times. But I will aim to get the next episode out uh, within the next two to four weeks, definitely. So until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber jabber.